Once Latin America's wealthiest country, the conflict has plunged Venezuela into deep economic turmoil. And the government's management of the economy has been disastrous. Conditions in Venezuela are heartbreaking. The power struggle between President Nicolas Maduro and the opposition leader Juan Guaido just keeps going Single on. largest economic collapse outside of war in at least 45 years. This is Voices of Venezuela, a new mini-series produced at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in collaboration with the Dracopoulos Ideas Lab. I'm your host, Moises Rendon, and the director of the Future of Venezuela Initiative at CSIS. I was born and raised in Venezuela. I left the country in 2012 to pursue better opportunities and a safer life in the United States. In each episode, we will dive into one of the many aspects of the crisis in Venezuela. We will hear from Venezuelans about what's happening on the ground and weave in analysis from experts at CSIS and beyond. We will cover a wide range of issues from water infrastructure to the lack of medicine to illegal mining. We will highlight what the U.S. and international community can do to help the voices of Venezuela. Welcome to Voices of Venezuela. I'm Moises Rendon, Director of the Future of Venezuela Initiative at CSIS. If you're new to this podcast, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to some of the earlier episodes in the series. So far, we have heard from Venezuelans about the struggles they face in their daily life, including water shortages, violence, and a lack of access to healthcare, among others. Throughout the series, I discuss these issues with top policy experts all of whom provided recommendations for alleviating the Venezuelan crisis and rebuilding the country in the day after a scenario. Though the topics we discuss vary drastically from episode to episode, all of the experts I interviewed agreed on one key recommendation, reestablishing democracy in Venezuela. Indeed, as long as the Maduro regime remains in power, Venezuelans' many crises, from power outages to hyperinflation to human rights violations, cannot be solved. But to recover its democracy, Venezuela needs help from the international community, including the United States. Today, I'm joined by Juan Cruz and Mark Fersten to discuss the U.S. policy toward Venezuela. We'll talk about the U.S. maximum pressure campaign and how this strategy may evolve in the coming months, given the U.S. presidential elections. Juan Cruz is a senior advisor at CSIS. He previously served in the National Security Council as a special assistant to President Trump and senior director for Western Hemisphere's Affairs. Mark Furstein is also a senior advisor at CSIS. Mark previously served as a special assistant to the president and senior director for Western Hemisphere's Affairs in the Obama administration. He also served at USAID, first as assistant administrator for Latin America and the Caribbean, and later as acting deputy administrator of the agency. Thank you both for joining. Pleasure to be here with you, Moises, and a pleasure to be here with my former colleague and good friend, Juan. Thank you, Moises. Same here. Now, following Maduro's fraudulent re-election in 2018, the U.S. and dozens of other countries recognized Juan Guaido as the legitimate president of Venezuela. One and a half years later, Maduro still controls key institutions. Juan, in what ways did we miscalculate Maduro's ability to grasp onto power? And what is keeping the regime afloat despite the pressure that has been applied by the U.S. and other countries? Moises, I, I think that was was underestimated was Maduro's uh, power of resilience, his ability to hang on no matter how many blows he received. 
And uh, likewise, what was underestimated was the Venezuelan military reluctance or inability or lack of motivation to act. And I think to keep them afloat, a number of issues. One is the, uh, and this also falls underestimation, of the crime and corruption substituting responsible governance, as well as the assistance of five countries, five allies of the regime, Cuba, Russia, China, Iran, and Turkey, that have thrown a life preserver to Venezuela at one time or another, either uh, economically or through security and intelligence support. Now, the international community has made multiple attempts to negotiate with the Maduro regime, both formally and informally. So, Mark, why have these negotiations efforts failed and how does the U.S. maximum pressure campaign contribute to these negotiation efforts? Well, I think they've failed for a few reasons. If you go back to the period of 2015-2016, when a lot of the negotiations began, there really wasn't a lot of pressure on the regime. You may recall when the Obama administration sanctioned a number of senior officials in the spring of 2015, other countries in the region, European countries, did not follow. In fact, many objected, and there was an uproar in the region because consistent with the legislation governing the sanctions, Venezuela was described as a security threat to the United States. Now, that back then, that was considered a controversial statement. I don't think anyone would consider that so controversial today. But the regional politics of the time was really not favorable to pressuring Maduro. You may recall that in 2015, in Argentina, President Fernandez de Kirchner was still in office. In Brazil, Dilma Rousseff was still there. President Omala was in Peru. And in Colombia, you had President Santos, who was very much focused on his own uh, negotiations with the FARC and the peace process there. So there wasn't a lot of attention being paid to Venezuela by many of the key actors in the region, and there wasn't a lot of pressure. At the same time, the crisis then really wasn't as serious as it is today. Uh, You had 100% inflation versus a million. The migration crisis had yet to begin. At the time, Colombia thought it could manage the influx of migrants from Venezuela with some support from the UN, the United States. No one imagined at the time you'd have four to five million people leaving the country over the next few years. And the opposition back then still was focused on a democratic electoral route out of the crisis. The opposition strategy in 2015 was focused on the National Assembly elections, which took place in December of that year. And then they tried to achieve a recall vote in 2016. And I think that explains to a large extent why negotiations were not successful in that period. And then more recently, the Trump administration has really undermined the talks. They've discouraged negotiations, for example, those that were orchestrated by by Norway. I think it's going to be hard, any negotiation is going to be hard, simply because the regime is not inclined to give up power. And Juan talked about the regime's resilience. But I think also they just don't feel sufficient pressure externally, internally to do so. They have important external support now, as Juan uh, suggested. So under any conditions, negotiations will be difficult, arguably harder now than a few years ago, given the range of international actors that are involved. And negotiations ultimately may not work. But I don't see any another option as Elliot Abrams, who is managing Venezuela policy at the State Department for the Trump administration, said to you, Moises, in a a CSIS webinar just a couple months ago, there are three ways out of the crisis. One is magic. You can wave a magic wand. Two is some sort of external military operation. But if you don't believe those two are going to happen, if you don't believe in a magic wand, if you don't believe there's going to be a U.S. military operation, that leaves you with negotiations. 
And we need a strategy to maximize the likelihood of success of those negotiations. Thank you, Mark. That was great. Uh, Juan, let's follow up on that, because if we don't believe in magic and U.S. interventions, uh, as I think we all do, then the option left, as Mark was saying, is, is some sort of negotiation. But as we were talking, none of these negotiations efforts have resulted in any positive outcomes. So what needs to happen to change that if there is a future negotiation effort to convince Maduro and others to be part right, of a transition or not? to restore the democracy in Venezuela. Um, Moises, Mark made some very good points regarding that. Up until now, the regime has taken advantage of every effort of negotiation, and they've done a good job of taking advantage of that and not following through with anything they've done or agreed to at the time of uh, talks and negotiations. But I think certain things can change on the way forward. I, too, believe that at some point you've got to negotiate something with someone I also agree that the conditions are not ripe. They haven't been for a long time. And in this particular moment, I think that the regime feels that they can uh, stick it out, especially given the support of some of their allies and some of the weaknesses they perceive in the Guaido interim government. But the fact is that they can't hold on forever. And whether it's, you know, the COVID crisis or the continuing economic deterioration or the depressed oil prices and their inability to produce oil or the effects of maximum pressure. But whatever it is, the rope's going to tighten around Maduro's neck. And at some point, he's going to have to cry uncle. And what conditions lead to that? You know, I'm not sure. If I knew, I'd probably have another job right now. But I think what we need to do is hold our noses. As the State Department's uh, Venezuela transition plan is a great place to start. It's generous. It's a good place to have a conversation. But as Mark pointed out, there's an acute trust deficit and we'll need some confidence building measures on both sides so that folk can get closer and build a bridge over that gap in the middle. Yeah, good points. There's a very important event coming up in the U.S., right? We have presidential elections and these elections are coming at a critical time in Venezuelan politics as the regime prepares to host illegitimate legislative elections in December, right? The, the most possible outcome for these elections so far is fraudulent. We don't have the conditions right now to have free and fair elections. Nonetheless, that's the strategy of the Maduro regime to move forward with it. Now, Mark, if Vice President Biden wins in November, what are the key ways, in your opinion, in which our strategy toward Venezuela might change? And as one of the most important pillars of the U.S. policy toward Venezuela, will the sanction program change at all? Well, first, I think it's important to keep in mind that there is bipartisan condemnation of the Maduro regime. And Joe Biden's been very clear about the nature of the regime about, and about Nicolas Maduro. He calls him a, a dictator and has indicated that there needs to be some sort of a democratic transition, uh, ideally through free and fair elections. I think as well that there is bipartisan support for certain policy elements, as I agree with Juan, that I think the State Department has some, can be a good starting point, that there are elements of that that are worth supporting. I assume that a Biden administration would maintain targeted sanctions, I think they'd probably want to review the economic sanctions, the broader sanctions on the Venezuelan economy to ensure they're having the right impact and that they're hurting the regime and not the Venezuelan people. And that's often, of course, a difficult needle to thread, not only in Venezuela, but in other countries. I think you'd have potential for more cooperation from Europe under a Biden administration. As we know, most European governments have great disregard 
for Trump, a great distaste for him. But there is a great reservoir of respect uh, for Joe Biden. And I think that you could, uh, as a result, get more coordinated action internationally. I think also in a Biden administration, you would see a more thoughtful effort to think through a strategy and have all the tools that we have come together. You would no longer have a campaign of pressure for the sake of pressure. At least that's the way I, I see the current Trump administration approach. And I think that there would be some serious thinking about how to calibrate the sanctions, how to target them, what kinds of incentives to offer and to whom. And finally, I think you'd see more support for any promising negotiation effort, whether that's by, you know, sponsored by Norway or any other actor. What about the international arena? Like, do you see a possible Biden administration bringing together countries around the globe to unite efforts with the U.S. and others to restore democracy? How do you see that playing out? Well, first of all, I think a Biden administration would have a lot more credibility uh, than a Trump administration when it comes to democracy, human rights. And that's because there would be greater respect for democracy, human rights at, at home. And I think you'd also see a more consistent approach applied to the support for democracy globally. Right now in President Trump, we have someone who has an affinity for authoritarian leaders and Joe Biden would, would not. So I think that would help to create a better environment to build the kind of international support that we would need from countries in Europe, countries in Latin America in particular, to put pressure on the regime. I think it's important to keep in mind, though, that not every country needs to play the same role. There are some countries uh, that will apply sanctions. There will be some countries who might be more adept at playing a diplomatic role. Uh, some countries might play more of a role when it comes to public diplomacy. So I think there needs to be coordination and collaboration, but not necessarily consistency in terms of a coordinated effort, but not necessarily the same sorts of actions from every government. Yeah. Juan, if President Trump is reelected, how might his second administration approach the Venezuela issue differently? What are the key lessons we have learned and what can be done differently, particularly with regard to sanctions as well? Well, Moises, I think, you know, if you look, the Trump administration has done an awful lot on Venezuela. And in some ways, there's going to be a block of advisors who are going to be inclined to do more of the same and do it harder. But I think that there's also a wild card in here in, in President Trump himself. I think he's tiring of Venezuela and the fact that there is no resolution and he is propense to lose patience on these sorts of things, which actually that wild card then represents that he, instead of doing the same as advisors might encourage him to do, he might actually take a tougher stance or conversely take a softer stance. Tougher being, you know, he's he's had certain inclinations to take in extremist measures, although there's no um, stomach for it among the agencies, departments, and advisors. But he also, the negotiating piece is something that appeals to the inner Trump. And so uh, that's a long way of saying that, you know, any one of those things could play out. I think what we've learned is that there are no quick fixes. I think some in the administration thought you just sprinkle a little bit of fairy dust and the situation would be resolved. I also think that we've learned that hope is no longer a plan. You know, if you look at 30 April, for example, that was ill-conceived and a bad thing to get behind and not the way to do it. Um, I also think that we've learned to build a crescendo, even though we said that there was a steady drumbeat, there often wasn't. There was just, you know, this kind of staccato approach. I also think that among the things that we'll do differently, you know, State Department is doing a really good job. DOD was slow on getting out of the gate, but they've stepped up very quickly and Treasury is outsized role. But things we could be doing differently, I'm not privy to what's being done on Turkey, but I think we need to realign that piece. 
Um, we should be able to exercise enough influence in Turkey to divorce it from that group of five countries that are helping the regime. I also would like to think that opportunities are that we can help the opposition build capabilities. You know, when most of this region was right-wing dictatorships, Venezuela was one of the rare examples that was a democracy. And they took it upon themselves to help these uh, countries build political parties and participate in election and run campaigns and develop student groups and that sort of thing. And all that's atrophied, ironically, in Venezuela. But an opposition uh, could certainly benefit from exactly those kinds of tools on how to operate in a restored democracy. They also need to be ready to govern. And I don't think the United States has done enough to prepare them for that. Other area for improvement, I would improve our communication with the Venezuelan military. We've come up short on that and we've seen the consequences. And on the piece of sanctions, I'm actually an advocate for this, but I think that we've gone overboard. The only thing we haven't sanctioned is oxygen. And I think that, you know, those of us who know the region know that particularly in this region, we don't sanction ourselves out of problems. That's just one of many tools that we should be employing. Yeah. Look, as as we mentioned earlier, according to the Venezuelan constitution, there has to be parliamentary elections December of 2020, right? And then the National Assembly was supposed to be taken into power in January of 2021. So... A question for both of you is how might the U.S. respond if the Maduro regime hosts these parliamentary elections in December? What do you think will be the response of each of the administrations on, on that regard in January? Let's go with you, Mark. Well, look, I, I think the real question is for the Venezuelan opposition, and they need to decide what their posture is with regard to the elections. I know there, there is a debate within the opposition about whether to participate Obviously, the conditions are not ripe for anything close to a free and fair process as the Maduro regime has been taking over opposition parties and imposing a, a CNE, that uh, electoral council that nobody can trust. And obviously, you still have political prisoners and restrictions on, on civil liberties. So you would need significantly better environment for there to be any participation by the opposition. At the same time, you know, boycotting elections is not necessarily proven to be a solid strategy. Uh, we saw it happen many, many years ago when during Chavez, the opposition chose not to participate in an assembly election. It really set them back, I think. We do know that within Venezuela, the vast majority of people, we know this based on public opinion polling, that the vast majority of Venezuelan people support the opposition. They want Maduro out. They would participate in any remotely free and fair process. And we have seen around the world where opposition movements in authoritarian settings have been able to overcome all the obstacles they faced. And of course, in this region, the two most famous are Chile in 1988, Nicaragua in 1990. Not to compare those situations directly, they're obviously very, very different. And I'd argue that the Venezuelan situation is much more difficult. But I do think that ultimately this will be a decision for the opposition and I think if a Biden administration you know, does take office in January and has to face a Maduro regime, which I think regrettably it, it will, I don't think that necessarily elections are a big factor in that. It'll just be one more ingredient making the case for the fact that Maduro is a dictator and that a democratic transition is, is required. Thank you, Mark. Juan, what do you think about this? Well, he says, I'm still baffled by those who argue in favor of a participation of fake elections. I just, I just don't see it. And I'm struck by people who still want to 
uh, follow the rules in a dictatorship. The dictatorship rewrites the rules at their whim and whenever they want. And so everything about these elections are a farce. We have a National Electoral Council that's been recently picked out of lackeys of the government and outside of the norms of the Constitution. We have political parties who named and the party themselves are being stolen from the opposition political parties. We have potential participants that have been stripped of their political rights. We have others that are in exile and yet others that have been arrested. We have a campaign environment that is disadvantageous to the uh, opposition in six months. It's ridiculous that you could run any sort of real campaign in six months with all the disadvantages that they have. And let's face it, people are out of practice in running in a, an election in, in Venezuela. The government has recently increased the size of what the National Assembly would be to guarantee that they would have the right numbers. And and on 5 July, as recently as 5 July, the Minister of Defense made it very clear that the opposition would never achieve political power in Venezuela. What other dissuasive factors do you need to stay out of fake elections in Venezuela? And so I think when your question is, how does the U.S. react? I think the first thing it does is that it yawns, a big fat yawn. We ignore the charade in the theater. We continue to lead with a steady hand. And we lead international efforts to continue to recognize the Guaido government until truly legitimate elections are held. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree with all that. I mean, obviously, it's a farcical process that no one's going to take seriously. I did, of course, note that there have been cases where opposition movements have been able to overcome a lot of the same types of obstacles that Juan's talking about. That said, in Venezuela, the situation is that much more extreme. And I think it's very difficult to make an argument at this point. Uh, that the opposition should participate in any way in those. Look, gentlemen, this has been a great conversation. I, I want to wrap up the podcast with the final question. If you were sitting in the NSC in January 2021, either as part of a Biden administration or as a second term of the Trump administration, what would be the main priority, one main priority that you would be looking into on Venezuela and our U.S. policy towards Venezuela? Listen, I would focus on negotiations, uh, but negotiations in a new and creative way that we haven't thought of until now. Between now and in the next six months or so, what we'll have is a new condition, ever worsening condition in Venezuela, and that will provide some opportunities. Again, I think we hold our noses. We start with some of the things that work. And then my own view is that we think of something radical. Maybe we deputize some carefully chosen things third country partners or allies to meet with the regime on our behalf, or maybe the regime's own designated representatives, let's say like a proxy negotiation that makes up for two things, emotion, and second, this trust deficit that exists. And maybe with some instructions, these proxies sit down and find some common ground and develop the right sort of conditions so that interested parties can actually sit there face to face. That it be hosted in a new way by a new player that heretofore has not been involved. So it's a little fresher. And the negotiating process has left a lot of casualties in its wake and discredited a number of, of people and entities. I think it's time for new players to step up and new entities, whatever they are, an institution, an organization, a multilateral, whatever it is, that's the player that is the host of a negotiation. Mark, over to you. Yeah, I think a, a first step for a Biden administration would have to be a serious policy review. We need to understand what went wrong. The fact is that more than one administration has failed to achieve a democratic transition in Venezuela. Now, of course, ultimately, it's not up to the United States. It's up to the Venezuelan people. 
uh, but the United States can be supportive. So I think uh, incoming personnel would want to hear from experts and other agencies, the State Department, Treasury Department, get a sense of what's working, what's not. They'd want to consult with the Venezuelan opposition, the various elements within the opposition, get their thoughts. They'd want to consult with European allies, Latin American allies, other actors like the OAS. And I think more than anything, they'd want insight into the Maduro regime and the military and how to influence them, how to best calibrate pressure, how to offer the right inducements that will lead to a democratic transition. But in any case, I think Venezuela will be a high priority for a Biden administration. It really has to be given the varied interests at stake, questions of security, law enforcement, human rights and democracy, stability of countries in the region, humanitarian issues. And regrettably, I think the crisis could be with us for, for some time. Mark Juan, it's been a great honor to have you both as a guest of the last episode of Voices of Venezuela. We hope to have you guys in the future again and, and thank you again for taking the time. Great, thank you. My pleasure, thank you. Voices of Venezuela is produced in collaboration with the Trocapulus Ideas Lab at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Special thanks to Jumi Araki, Julia Kim, Bree Silly, who contributed to the production of this podcast, and to Maria Despradel, Claudia Fernandez, and Linnea Sandin for providing research support. Thank you for listening today. We will be here next week with a new episode of Voices of Venezuela. Thank you.